Good morning. Well, today is, uh, as, as Alan said, we're going to be talking about uh, Christ the prophet. We're going to be seeing how God speaks to us. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and shortly how Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy and the source of all revelation. Uh, in some ways, uh, a notebook would be more handy uh, to have open in front of you, uh, because there would be quite a few different references. Um, but uh, if you want to keep anything open in front of you uh, and you have a Bible, then Hebrews 1 would probably be a good place to be, 1201, page 1201. Uh, let's uh, begin with a prayer, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that you are God who speaks to us today. We thank you for sending us Jesus as your words for all time. Lord, I pray that you may speak to us this morning as I speak your words. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Isaiah saw visions. Michael was a miner. John wore animal skin. Elijah wore a cloak. Elijah was a bald-headed man who wore a hand-me-down cloak. Jeremiah smashed pottery. Daniel was a vegetarian. Ezekiel lay on his side for 390 days eating bread. And the greatest of them all, Moses, was a basket case from the beginning. <laughs> I see we have some prophets in the church this morning as well. Who would want to be a prophet? And yes, if you ever wanted to be a Messiah, and I hope that's none of you, but if you've ever wanted to be a Messiah, then prophet is part of the job description. Uh, alongside the other roles, priest and king. We've been singing about those three roles, haven't we? Prophet, priest and king. You simply can't avoid it. You see, Messiah means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, priests were anointed with oil. But so were kings. And so were the prophets, as in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 16. So we have these three roles, priest, king and prophet. And sometimes theologians call them the three officers of Christ, three officers or roles of Christ. And you'll hear about the other two in the next, coming, in the next two weeks, uh, king and prophet. But today, we want to see how God speaks. Because one of the great things about being a Christian is that we have a God who speaks. Not a God who has spoken, or a God who will speak, but a God who speaks in the past, in the future, and is speaking now. He's not a silent God. And that's comforting, isn't it? Because we can't see God, can we? You see, if I say to the word uh, dog to you right now, you immediately get this picture of this four-legged animal wagging its tail, or a snarling, uh, barking uh, horror, depending on your last experience. But if I say that word spelt backwards, God, then you have no immediate picture in your minds, no image to fall back on, because we cannot see God. At least I hope you're not seeing an old man with a white beard. If you are, then that's wrong. Just put it out of your mind. We cannot see God. However, we do have a God who speaks. We can hear his voice. He's not silent. And each of us who's a Christian here, I hope, can probably remember a time when God has spoken to us, when we've heard his voice. I hope that you've heard it in the last week, perhaps even this morning. Our God delights to speak because that's what he's all about. See, he's not distant. 
but he draws near to us. He's not cross or angry. He wants to communicate with us. He's not silent because he longs to have this relationship with his children. It would be a strange father, wouldn't it, who didn't want to speak to his children. Sometimes I feel like that, but mostly I don't. Well, in the past, as the key text from Hebrews 1 tells us, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That included lying on their sides, as we said, getting tied up, smashing their way through the walls of Jerusalem to make a point, despite having a perfectly acceptable gate a little bit further along, and, and in Hosea's case, allowing their wives to become prostitutes to make a, a rather different point. God spoke to us through this wild but anointed bunch. The oil that was put on their foreheads was an outward symbol of the Spirit of God in them. And they spoke God's words to the people. Now these messages came in many different ways, through dreams and visions, through moments of ecstasy, external voices, internal voices, and so on. But the word was always God's and not the prophet's. They proclaimed divine judgment and divine salvation, oracles of woe and of blessing. They told people off and made judicial-style speeches. And sometimes, sometimes, just occasionally, they told the future. But that wasn't the major part of their work. They weren't soothsayers. What they were was God's spokespeople. They spoke God's words. Some were itinerant holy men. Some were miracle workers. Some gathered disciples around them. Others worked alone. Some lived as outcasts. Uh, Others had kings living in fear of them. Some worked in the temple at the centre of the religious establishment. Others stood outside as reformers. That's a pain in the butt. Constantly calling Israel back to the covenant that God had made with them. But if they were true prophets, the one thing they had in common was that they were all spirit-bearing people. And they were able to say things like, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, Micah 3, verse 8. Or, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is upon my tongue, 2 Samuel 23. They spoke with the authority of God, and their favourite phrase, which they use hundreds of times, is, thus says the Lord. And it was this that made the people sit up and listen. You see, children routinely ignore that irritating background noise, don't they? I have a, we have the, uh, the urn in the corner as an irritating background noise. Sounds like somebody's sleeping in the corner over there, but it's actually the coffee urn. <laughs> children routinely ignore the sound of their loving parents, don't they? Calling them to tea or to get their pyjamas on. But when they go to school, most of the time, most of the time, they listen to what their teachers have said. If they get a visitor into assembly, then they listen intently. If they get a message, if they got a messenger from the Queen coming into school announcing that they were going to have an additional bank holiday next year for the Diamond Jubilee, they would hang on to every word, wouldn't they? Well, if we hear a messenger from God Almighty who says, Thus says the Lord, do we sit up and listen? Because that's what the Old Testament prophets claim to do. And to disbelieve them or to disobey them was to disbelieve or disobey God. Hence, in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, we read, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But then, a strange thing happened. You see, it appears that once the people were back from, e- from exile, about 400 years before Christ returns, the prophets died out. Their voice 
became silent. Now, I don't think that God left them without any witness. There were probably some small voices still being heard at that time. Nevertheless, just as the priesthood and the temple were not as good as they used to be, and the kings were certainly not as good as they used to be, after all, they were foreign, weren't they? The voice of the prophets were not as they used to be either. And the people missed them. Psalm 74, verse 9, laments, We're given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long, O God, was their cry. And this went on until Daniel recorded in the vision, which said a time is coming to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Daniel chapter 9. Now, of course, that prophecy probably referred to a specific historical event in Judah's history, around 200 BC. But in the way of prophecy, it also pointed forward. It also pointed forward to a time when there'd be a kind of cooling-off period, a waiting period, during which time the voices of the old prophets would fade away and the expectation of the coming one, the coming holy one, the most holy one, grew. It's a bit like an interregnum in the Church of England, only less intense. How long, O Lord? You see, they were all waiting for the anointed one. Even the Samaritan woman at the well in John's Gospel uh, at first tells Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. And then says, but I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And by the end of their conversation, she was already seeing that the expectation was over, the waiting had come to an end, and this really was the Messiah standing before her. And that's where our other reading comes in, from Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, it says. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and he stood up and he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found it, where it said... The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants. He sat down, as was the norm then when people were preaching, and he began to say to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Not only that, but the sermon that followed was, was, was so full of prophetic force that it literally split the village. Some were amazed. Others rejected him. And as far as we know, Jesus never returned to Nazareth again. Do you sense the shock of that moment? Jesus, Jesus, the son of Joseph... The anointed one? You see, they, the, the Jews still couldn't get their head around it and 50 years later. That's why in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews has to say, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, note the sense of discontinuity here. You see, the writer doesn't just mean that Jesus is simply the latest in a series of revelations. He's not saying that Jesus is just God's latest mouthpiece. He's saying something entirely different has happened. He's saying that God has changed language. 
You see, previously he spoke in Hebrew through the, la- through the prophets, the language of the prophets. But now he speaks a different language entirely. He speaks son. It's no longer prophetic revelation, it's the son revelation. It's as though God has opened his mouth and out of his mouth walks Jesus. Which is why in Hebrews our writer doesn't just report what Jesus said, but he tells us who Jesus is. In Hebrews 1, just follow down the extraordinary string of statements about Jesus. He is the heir of all things, the one through whom God made the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's being. It's as if a seal was being stamped into molten wax. He sustained all things by his powerful words. Jesus is the prophet. He is a prophet. Even the Muslims obviously would agree with us on that. But he's much, much more than just a prophet because, firstly, he's the one about whom all the Old Testament prophecies were made. And secondly, because Jesus is not merely a, revelation, a, mess, a messenger of revelation from God, he is himself the source of all revelation from God. So let's just uh, take a closer look at those two things. Firstly, he's the one about whom the Old Testament prophecies were made. So when the resurrection of Jesus catches up with those on the Emmaus Road, He opens the scriptures to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. On another occasion, he told his disciples, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's in Luke 24. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter explains that the Old Testament prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you and pointed forward to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So what we find is that all Old Testament prophecy points forward, looks forward to Christ. And in the New Testament, we find that the apostles, like Peter and Paul, looked back to Christ and interpreted his life for us. Secondly, we find that Jesus was not merely a messenger of revelation from God, but he was the source of all revelation from God. So rather than saying, as all the Old Testament prophets did, thus says the Lord, Jesus begins his teaching in Matthew 5, and chapter, uh, verse 22 onwards. He says, Amen, or truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you. See, the word of the Lord came to the prophets, but Jesus spoke as the eternal word of God, John 1, verse 1. Jesus spoke as the one who perfectly revealed the Father to us, John chapter 14, verse 9, and here in Hebrews 1 again. So Jesus is God's definitive word for us today. He's both the fulfillment of the prophets and the source of all revelation. Now, not many of you know uh, my middle name, and if I refuse to tell you what it is, you can speculate, but you'll never know. I mean, you could look at me and you think, well, you could say, I bet it's Hamish. Or something like that. But you might be right, or you might be wrong. Now, if I were to tell you that my middle name is actually Jeffrey, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Named after my father, there you go. That would be it. 
the secret is out. There'd be no further discussion to be had on this exciting matter of what my middle name is. Well, a secret is out. There is nothing more to be said. There's no point in further speculation or further visions because the secret is revealed in Jesus on this business of how to know God. There's nothing more to be said. So if any of you here today don't know God and you want to know more about him, if any of you are facing a life where you think, is there a God, isn't there a God, what's going to happen when I die? Where do you start? You start with Jesus. Jesus is the place to start. For us Christians, it has implications for us too. When it comes to the salvation of others, or our own discipleship, it's not good enough for Christians just to hint at God's love. It's not good enough for us to say, look at us, look at what Christians do, aren't we good? It's not even good enough to ask other people, what can I do for you in a loving kind of way? No, our priority has to be every time to point people to Christ, to point people to Jesus. And to do it in full, we need to know everything there is to know about Jesus. And to do that, we need the whole Testament about him. So we need to read the Old Testament prophets in the light of Christ and his coming, as much as we need to read the Gospels and the New, Te- and, and the New Testament apostles. And Alan won't like me for the, saying this, but that's why I don't like it in communion services where we stand for the Gospel and we sit for the Old Testament reading. It's all the Word of God. It's all speaking about Christ. We should treat it with the same amount of honour. I've lost my place. <laughs> Got carried away. <laughs> so we need to read the Old Testament, the New Testament. We need to learn about Christ. Otherwise, as somebody put it, there's a very, very real danger of inoculation in the church. Just a little bit of cowpox will stop you from getting smallpox. So little doses of the gospel, somebody said, will prevent you from getting an inflammation of faith. A.W. Tozer said, sermonettes produce Christianettes. See, Jesus is God's word for us today, and he's found throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. And it's exciting to find out about him. I'm reading a a little book at the moment uh, called The Bible in Spain by George Borrow, as in George Borrow Rhodes. I wonder how many of you know who George Borrow was. Well, he was born in East Durham in 1803, and he attended Norwich Grammar School, as was then, and he was extremely good at languages. Uh, Early in life, he embarked on his first work, which was translate from German uh, a Faustian legend, which had been first published in St. Petersburg. And Borrow liked to play around with his text a little bit. Uh, This has got nothing to do with sermon episode, but it's good stories, I'll tell you. And in one place, uh, in this this translation of a German text, he altered the name of the city, thus making the Faustian legend read this. He said, They found the people of the place modelled after so unsightly a pattern, with such ugly figures and flat features, that the devil owned he had never seen them equalled, except by the inhabitants of an English town called Norwich, (laughs) when dressed in their Sunday best. Apparently, after that, uh, the, the, uh, the public subscription library in the city burned George Burroughs' books. Can you imagine librarians doing that today? But the most important thing about George Burroughs was between 19, 1835 and 1840, 
He worked as a missionary in Spain. He worked for the Bible Society. And what he was doing there, it was a war-torn country at the time. There was a massive civil war going on. And there's bandits and thieves on every road. But he spent five years travelling on horseback through that country at immense personal danger to himself, simply in order to get to Madrid, gain permission to print the Bible with no notes attached to it in Spain, in Spanish, and then to travel around the country trying to hand out those Bibles or to sell them through booksellers. So he'd travel from village to village and city to city and he'd deposit his books with various booksellers or people he met. So there'd be five Bibles there and then he'd move to another city and there'd be another ten Bibles left there and he'd move on to another town or city and he'd be able to leave, I don't know, ten, fifteen books there. The numbers were tiny in comparison to the country. But each time he leaves a city in this book, he wrote about his adventures, he says, the seeds of the gospel have been sown. George Borrow wasn't a preacher. He simply handed out the word of God and he engaged people in conversation as best he could. And then he left and he trusted in the Spirit that they, he would lead them to Jesus. So whenever we speak truthfully about God in Christ, to believers or to unbelievers, we fulfil a prophetic function in the broader sense, to proclaim the gospel to the world, to bring God's salvation, a saving word to people everywhere. So our speech should be peppered with Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I know that's easier said than done, but I firmly believe that that's what we're called to do, to tell people about Jesus. Because Christ was anointed as a prophet, but we are anointed too as the body of Christ, as his body. So that whenever the gospel is preached, or whenever the gospel is gossiped at work, the power of the Spirit is present. I wonder whether you can see the fulfilment of that prophetic role in your lives right now. To whom are you speaking about Christ? Is the name of Jesus always on your lips? Is the Spirit leading you to speak to somebody so that they may be saved? Let's end with a prayer. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Lord, we thank you that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are the heir of your kingdom. We are the heirs of your salvation. We, one day, will live with you in paradise, in glory. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the salvation that you brought to us. May we be so overwhelmed with the joy of knowing your Son, Jesus Christ, that we want to speak about him wherever we are, whoever we're with. May we just speak, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen.